You're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turfnet zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Hello and welcome to Rock Bottom Country Club, where we've been having record golfer turnout. Folks are desperate to get outside, and golf is the best place to get outside. That's also within reasonable driving distance of population centers. It's been great seeing all the new golfers, families playing golf together, the elders passing on their knowledge of the game, and I find it really interesting that very little of this surge in golf is attributable to slogans, programs, or initiatives. Today's topic concerns golf course renovation, and the one thing you need to know if you're facing a renovation. The reason we're hitting this subject? Well, if you're a veteran rock-bottom reader, viewer, or listener, you will recall that about 20 years ago, the mad golf prophet suggested that the big golf boom was over and that new course building would slow way down. We were told to keep quiet when we hinted that the days of milk and honey for architects and golf real estate developers were fading away. But we had a positive message. We told the golf industry to tune up for a wave of rebuilds and renovations, and that's exactly what happened. The aging mad golf prophet, who lives quietly behind my cerebral vortex and only surfaces when he reads too much on the interweb, has noticed what is possibly another wave of renovations about to sweep over us. With Jack Nicholas talking about renovating Muirfield, and the Golf Expert Forums mentioning Oakland Hills also doing a renovation, it might be time for everyone to sharpen up the various skills one needs for implementing and surviving one of these renovation traumas. As a survivor of a renovation, two redesigns, and a couple of resurrections, I can tell you one key point that the golf course superintendent really needs to know before embarking on a massive project that falls way outside the normal routine of golf maintenance. If you jump into a renovation, it can be the greatest learning experience of your golf life. It can also be traumatic. But even that'll make you better, unless your golf course patient dies on the table. The superintendent dealing with a renovation will learn a great deal about golf in general course construction, contractors, green committee members, and human nature. The secret I'm about to tell you is not new to the veterans of the industry, but it could be helpful for the younger men and women of golf. Now, before we go down the rabbit hole of golf course renovation, please take a few seconds for this word about our sponsor, Dryject. Dryject is the best way I know of to avoid a total green rebuild, which is without a doubt the touchiest, most dangerous renovation practice known to golf. Take a few minutes and study Dryject and its results before you start excavating and completely rebuilding greens. I wish I'd had Dryject in my day. I'd probably still have all my hair. Give Dryject a call and tell them Rock Bottom Country Club sent you. Before you dive into the volcano that is renovation, you might need to know if the project involves more than just a few fixes. Is it a total rebuild? Is it a redesign with a new architect or worse? Is it the feared restoration? Restorations usually only involve classic courses, architects who specialize in researching the old blueprints, and they're often experts in the particular original architect. These projects are very sensitive and can trigger all sorts of yelling and blame-flinging and even legal threats. I never experienced a restoration. I was more of a resurrection type. If you're facing a resurrection project, it is vital that you determine what made the course dead or near dead to begin with, as it'll only happen again after you pour in a couple of years of blood and sweat and expertise and no sleep and weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Hey, Cletus, listen, I'm doing the radio show. Can this wait? I don't understand what you just said. Hey, where'd you get the mask? That looks pretty good. Uh, Benford has a whole pile of masks, so I just took one. What's that made from? Looks like it was made out of a thong. A uh, what? There's writing on it. O-Deeps. O-Deeps. I never heard of O-Deeps. It's probably Chinese. Hey, Cletus, uh, you don't wear Speedos on your face. Wait, are those mine? I've been looking for them. How about y'all take it outside? I'm behind on this radio show. Okay, after you determine what kind of project you're facing, get prepared for meetings. Lots of meetings. Do your homework ahead of time. Don't just enter the first meeting blindly. Take notes during the meetings. Expect meetings in the boardroom, walking the course, riding in carts, sitting on truck tailgates, and meetings with accountants and lawyers and bureaucrats and inspectors and engineers and, well, it just goes on and on. Now, here is the big secret that the first-timer renovation superintendent absolutely needs to know. When the subject of, Hey, you read what this fellow on a golf Twitter said about you? Uh, no, I don't indulge in socialized media much. Well, he's a golfer, and he said, Goodell, I'm trying to do an important radio show. Can this wait? No, it's on Twitter. You know what? I think they named Twitter wrong. It should have been named Twaddle. Twaddle? Yep. Check out the dictionary definition of twaddle. It means trivial, foolish drivel. Well, sometimes I read some real wisdom on there. In the form of a meme, real wisdom in meme form is pretty rare. You a hypocrite. I seen you reading memes and laughing your butt off like stuff that Brian Nets feller puts on the turf net. You mean try to look unimportant, they might be low on ammo? Or, I know, Mongo only pawn in Game of Life. I'm sorry I ever brought this up. See, that phrase is true wisdom from the mind of Mongo, the great philosopher and thinker. Mongo only pawn in game of life. And if you spend every day virtue signaling on twaddle, well, you are too. You want a donut? No, I'm not allowed to eat donuts. This is one of them donuts right up your alley. Gluten-free, fat-free, sugar-free, taste-free, and it cost me $8, so here, eat it. Who keeps honking out there? Rudy. He's really impatient for a dog. Boof taught him how to honk a horn. Hey, listen, I was wondering, you want to go with me over to that new life extension place across from the Awful Waffle? They running a special on immortality. What did you say? See, they freeze your brain when you die and keep your consciousness in the cloud. Like, uh, you know, in the future when they defrost you, they put you inside a robot. You know, maybe a Terminator. Yeah, that sounds great, because computers never fail. I'd probably get stuck in the cloud and then end up in the radio on an old Ford Pinto. Ludell, just go mow some grass. I gotta finish this radio show. Yo, stick in the mud. What's that Ph.D. fella doing out on the back nine? Some kind of experiment. He says he can kill all the cutworms and grubs and mole crickets and nematodes without using any chemicals. Like those folks using a robot shooting ultraviolet light to kill Dollar Spot? No, he's buried a bunch of wires to electrocute the bugs. You let him bury electric wires in our golf course? What's the difference in that and all the wires we've had in the ground for decades? Me and Ludell been electrocuted every time we dug a hole, and you never complained about that. Well, that's different. Science Boy is out there turning our course into the world's biggest bug zapper. He says he can kill sting toads. Hey, look at this. His ground sensors indicate the presence of 
Army worms on 17 fairway. Go to DEFCON 1 and initiate Big Bug Zapper. I think we'd better wait. Cletus is still out there changing cups. This'll speed him up. You want me to call him on the radio and warn him? Just hit the zapper. Okay. Subsurface grid zapper set for army worms and engaged. Hey, Mama. The ground is vibrating out here like a motel room bed. Did you... I must have set the amperage too high. Cletus? You okay? Cletus? That's the strangest thing. Cletus run past me naked as a jaybird carrying a cup changer. This is what we get for messing with science we don't understand. Just think what could have happened. Yeah, we could have been teleported someplace awful like Syria. Or worse, Portland. Okay, I managed to get someplace quiet so I could finish the radio show. Now, I was about to tell you the big secret, the one thing you need to know about renovation projects. During the initial stages of a renovation, something frightful happens. It usually begins with the owners or the green committee returning from a visit to another golf course, one in spectacular shape, with excellent architecture, lots of bells and whistles, and they usually see this wondrous spectacle during a member guest, or in early April. They return brimming with enthusiasm and immediately begin to discuss making a change or two. Sometimes it's a simple solution like getting rid of the superintendent because at age 45 he or she is old and no longer has the fire in the belly. Or maybe the big change is new driving range mats and a better logo. It might be bringing in a USGA consultant or an independent. What happens next usually involves alcohol. Driven by single malt, apple teenies, and sometimes beer, they start thinking big really big, and somebody on the committee, usually a victim of that syndrome we won't mention, starts to agitate and shake the pom-poms with great gusto, and soon everyone has been whipped into a frenzy of renovationary lust, a fever for golf glory, and the possibility of a membership application waiting list, or hosting a U.S. Open. Relying on intel of a suspect nature, they toss around financial figures that include the term millions, and depending on the number of appletinis, might even say, Money is no object when it comes to our golf course. And here's where it gets weird. If the club is a top-level club, they'll bring in experts, sit down with the superintendent, and draw out a game plan involving costs, contractors, timelines, and what they expect to accomplish with the big project. And that's perfectly acceptable. But an upper or mid-level club who should know better will consult a few experts, like maybe a former green chair, and then bring in the superintendent for a serious meeting. They'll spout motivational jargon while linking the goals of the project to some sort of ultimatum like becoming the top club in the city or hosting a pro tournament. Lower level clubs are susceptible too, but they usually put most of the project weight directly upon the superintendent, complete with a few threats, and they link their goals to, say, hosting a national foot golf tournament. However you look at it, all these things we have discussed are good. No matter how it goes, you will gain tremendous experience in this field. Add impressive stuff to your resume and just overall get better at your career. Where it goes bad usually comes next. When the dollar amount is determined, say for instance like the time the Japanese corporation told us they wanted to renovate and had set aside two million dollars, well two things happen immediately. First, the clubhouse sect. They've been quietly waiting in the bushes. 
They will leap out like stagecoach robbers and demand their share, which is often around 70%. In this particular instance, we had indicated the course needed new greens because, well, they were dead. They were push-ups made of red clay with the texture of new bricks. And trying to grow bent in Atlanta on adobe was tough, especially if it hadn't rained for a couple of years. Also, before we arrived, somebody had sprayed them with something resembling simazine and planted common muda to hide the problem. Next, since the irrigation system was the worst hydraulic type ever installed and was down to one arthritic jockey pump and an anemic transfer pump, we suggested a new irrigation system. That left us needing two million after a quote from a reputable contractor for 600000 to do the greens to USGA's suggested specs, and less than a million for a new irrigation system for 27 holes, plus a pump station and a transfer pump station. The golf priest, who was held in the highest regard by the membership because he knew the dark secrets of pellet whacking, stirred up his followers and demanded a fair share for things like new locker rooms, a new pool, a new bar, new golf carts, and a more modern clubhouse. Because that one, well, it was almost 20 years old. The two million became 300,000 for us to rebuild the greens, in-house of course, put a band-aid on the irrigation system's corpse, and while we were at it, buy a few bags of asphalt and patch the cart paths, which, by the way, looked a lot like the streets of Berlin in 1945. At this point, Dad tried to explain the priorities. He stood before the corporate royalty and delivered the following eloquent speech. Ladies and gentlemen, the golf course is the heart of a golf club. If you have a great golf course in excellent shape, golfers will come from everywhere. But what if you just built a magnificent clubhouse out in the woods? How many people would come and join that? They studied Dad quietly and then said, So it's all settled. Maintenance will rebuild the golf course for 300000 and contractors will spend the remaining $1.7 on the clubhouse. It nearly killed us, but we did it. Near the end, as we all took on the characteristics of a rented mule, we were proud of what we had accomplished. And then they sold the club and ran away. Ten years later, that clubhouse was condemned, and then the course died on the table. So, when you sit down to meet with the starry-eyed committee, be prepared to experience grand dreams and plans and lots of money promised. But be very careful when the fiscal reality sets in. During the cost-cutting phase, usually about the same time the alcohol wears off, you'll hear detached voices saying things like, We'd like for you to handle this part in-house. The term reallocate will pop up, although it should be expropriate or steal. But anyway, whatever you decide, you will learn a great deal. Of course, you don't have to believe me. Just ask the veteran superintendents in your area, especially those who have survived a renovation. What are you doing? What's it look like? I'm sitting in time out. Did you break another one of Mama's garden gnomes? No, there was a big argument between all the voices in my head, and Mama put us all in time out, and I didn't even do nothing. Oh, well, next time, just don't fight in the clubhouse. I know that's right. When we get out of time out, I'm going into the cart barn, and I'm whooping everybody's ass, including mine, just to make sure I get the right one. Hey, Booth, your Uncle Reuben is sitting out there in his Buick with the winders up. I bet he's 200 degrees in there. Yeah, every time I roll him down, he just rolls him right back up. Well, if I was you, I'd go out there and see if Uncle Reuben is done yet. You know, if this was a musical, this is the part where we'd all sing and dance. Oh, no. You must remember this. Our coffee tastes like... Tastes like bonk. Willie, that don't even rhyme. Willie? Willie. Mama, y'all not swing that fry pan around till the song is finished. It was finished.
Now it's story time. Today's story time is called Got to Keep the Loonies on the Path. Since we're talking about renovations today, I thought I would tell you the story of the most traumatic but successful renovation in our family's entire golf history. It was 1973, and Dad had taken over a big muni outside Atlanta. It was a Dick Wilson design, probably Dick's last course, as he died before the course was built. The golf course was completed by an insurance underwriter who wasn't great at reading blueprints, but he did okay considering. The original contractor left, and according to the fine print on the bond, he was required to leave his equipment behind should he run off before finishing the job. He did leave all the heavy equipment behind, it's just that, well, he buried it. The greens? The greens were poorly built, sometimes just a few inches of clay sitting on granite, with some four-inch sewer pipes sprinkled about the subsurface. The list of problems was legion, but Dad furiously attacked the renovation with enthusiasm and motivation and no money whatsoever. This was one of those munis where the golf pro got all the revenue except for the green fees, and as he did not receive a share of the green fees, he had no incentive to consistently collect the fees. He preferred to get a cart fee and take a rain check with a wink and an elbow nudge in the manner of a Monty Python skit, so you can see why there was no money. And that's why Dad went all unconventional. He borrowed dump trucks from roads and drainage and hauled massive amounts of dirt to widen the skinny little fairways. He borrowed a hydromulcher, filled it with 419 sprigs acquired by setting a sweeper too low, and he hydrosprigged the newly widened fairways. As he had no money to replace the dead 328 Muda on the greens, Dad used the same technique that he used on the fairways to bring the greens back. But because 419 wasn't optimum for greens, he resorted to lots and lots of sand on the greens, combined with a torture device called a top-dressing rake. That rake caused my triceps to mutate, and I still think it ruined my putting stroke. Within a year and a half, the course had made top 50 in Golf Digest, pretty much what I would call a successful renovation, except for two problems. First, because this was before the great surge of course building, we didn't have a lot of competition. So when the course shot to the top, well, golfers came from all over. It wasn't long for we couldn't even get out on our own golf course. They were still teeing off at five in the afternoon. The second problem was the kind of golfers we attracted. We had all sorts of names for them, but the one that stuck was Loonies. This was because of that Pink Floyd song that was released during the renovation, and it became permanently lodged in my head for like half a century. You know what I'm talking about, right? The Pink Floyd golf reference? The lunatic is on the grass. Got to keep the loonies on the path. Here's an example of the type of golfers we attracted. I was paired with Lewis, a black guy who was an excellent golfer and former football player and fairly intimidating looking guy. We were put together on a project that involved siding greenside bunkers. Many of the bunkers on the course had, in the manner later adopted by Tom Fazio, Silly vertical flashes that washed out in a heavy fog. Dad flattened these abominations to reduce the amount of time we spent pushing sand straight up bunker walls after every rain. He did this by siding the walls. Lewis and I would cut sod from the far sides of tea surrounds, load it on a trailer, and reinstall it on greenside bunkers. We would then carefully rope off the area, stake the sod down, and water it to the consistency of a rice paddy. We also roped off the approaches, leaving little rope gates for the cattle, I mean the golfers, to walk in and put out. This is where our clientele problem surfaced. The golf pro made sure that the golfers were able to consume vast quantities of beer to complement their cart driving skills. 
As Lewis and I were putting the finishing touches on the greenside bunkers to the right of number nine, a foursome of beer-enhanced golfers appeared. Nine holes is plenty of time for beer to destroy the sensibilities of golfing man, and we watched as the foursome drove right through our little rope gate. Dragging yellow rope and rebar, the first cart steered between the green and the bunkers, slid sideways on the wet collar, and then tumbled down into the formerly steep-faced bunkers, dragging the new and carefully placed sod with it. The bamboo stake we'd installed to secure the sod had the look of a pungi jungle booby trap, and seeing the cart buried in mangled sod, wet sand, and bamboo stakes was, well, it was kind of terrifying. It was especially terrifying when the drunken golfers began howling like trapped animals, cursing us and demanding we extract them from the vicious trap we had laid for them. Now, I knew they were insane or drunk because nobody would curse at Lewis, but they did. And then Lewis muttered an oath, which I shall not repeat for you, and the howling increased along with some pretty harsh words from the drunken golfers. At this point, one of the ingenious drunkards took some of our yellow rope and attempted to tow the trapped cart from the bunker. I knew this fellow had either skipped or failed high school physics because his cart did the radial semicircle swing and crashed back into the bunker, destroying even more sod. This triggered even more vile oaths directed at me and Lewis. They were grown men, and I was just a 17-year-old idiot, so I refrained from cussing them back. The only thing I could think of was to yell out to no one in particular, The lunatics are on the grass! Got to keep the loonies on the path! This finely tuned act of poor judgment was precisely what brought on the conflict to be known forever as the Great Mystery Valley Shovel Fight. All four golfers, at least half of whom were seriously impaired, at the level technically known as commode-hugging drunk, grabbed their weapons, and rushed us. As I recall, they were armed with two putters, a broken bunker rake, and a sandwich. Lewis and I ran to our cushman and selected shovels of the long, round-tip variety and waded into the fight, flailing our edge weapons two-handed like English longswords. It was at this precise moment that Dad drove by, escorting important county officials who were there to evaluate how the renovation was proceeding. In the truck with Dad was the county CEO, an avid golfer, and in the sedan behind was a gaggle of county officials who, unfortunately for me, were not avid golfers. Dad kept calm, affecting an attitude of indifference, merely glancing over at our little battle, and he just kept driving. The county CEO was apparently impressed, as he made a remark to the effect that, although outnumbered, we seemed to be winning and were driving the barbarians back. Reinforcements began to arrive, as other crew members had heard me yelling about keeping the loonies on the path, and... This caused the golf idiots to fall back to the clubhouse, where they claimed they had been innocently playing golf and were set upon by golf course oafs, varlets, and knaves. The damage to the golf carts was blamed upon me, yet nothing was ever said about the damage done to the new sod or the bunkers or the collars. I was never to be allowed to use a pro shop cart for golf forever and ever, amen. And also, I was suspended for a week. As a result of this action, for the rest of my time in golf, that phrase... That Pink Floyd phrase stayed lodged in my head. I would just blurt it out at the most inopportune times, like when the pro shop called and asked about cart path rules. Got to keep the loonies on the path. You know, you gotta admit, that was some amazing synchronicity from Pink Floyd. I mean, how did they know way back then? So here's my advice. Be very careful how much you take on in a renovation. Doing both in-house projects and daily maintenance responsibilities especially in uncertain economic times with trouble attracting a workforce, can be a heavy weight. But more importantly, no matter how bad you want to say, got to keep the loonies on the path, don't say it. I said it repeatedly.
And that's probably why I'm here at Rock Bottom right now and not running Oakmont or Marion or Presidio. Well, that's not the entire reason, but it certainly didn't help. You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 